You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this is this The is Hour. You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. This is RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Coming up on this month's show, we'll be chatting with Amsterdam's new nightmare, Shamiro van der Held, about what he wants to achieve during his time in office. And Botbock and Elvis 1990, the founders of the highly influential UK label Night Slugs, will be celebrating 10 years of the label by playing us some of their favourite tracks from the catalogue. But first, I'm going to hand over to Carlos Hawthorne, who's been looking at how some of our favourite record labels handle giving feedback to their artists. Giving and receiving feedback is an essential part of everyday working life. Whatever your field, it's usually the best way to learn and improve. I'm a writer and reviews editor at RA, and feedback has been a huge part of my growth. Even so, it wasn't until a recent conversation with a producer friend of mine that I got to thinking about the role feedback plays in shaping some of our favourite electronic music. If you're a producer, most of the feedback you receive is from A&Rs and label managers, the people who ultimately decide whether they want to release your music. This process varies from label to label. Some people like to be very hands-on, inviting artists over to their studio for intense one-on-one sessions. Others take a more relaxed approach, preferring to be involved as little as possible. Either way, it can be a tricky and lengthy process, but one that's vital to getting the best music out there. Over the course of the last month, myself and the hour's London-based producer, Martha Pazienti Caden, sat down with some artists and label managers to dig deeper into this behind-the-scenes world. Hi, I'm Will Saul, and uh, my record label is Aus Music, and I am head of A&R at K7 and curate the DJ Kicks. In terms of giving feedback for a release on Aus music, um, I don't think that I've ever tried to say to sort of someone, can you make it a bit more Aus? <laughs> or can you, you know what I mean? Because I don't really know what that would be. It always very much depends on the artist. Some artists thrive on and want a lot of feedback. And that can be sort of right the way from how does the snare sound to is the arrangement right in terms of where the breakdown's position, should there be another breakdown, um, should there be a breakdown. And some people are very, very precious about what they've done and they don't want it touched at all and it's either like it or lump it. And I totally respect that. But also I think to a certain extent depends on the stage of development the artist is, is in themselves. If they are um, a new artist that hasn't released very much, then they're going to be much more open to wanting your feedback to develop because you should have had or at least at a certain point as an NR you would have had a lot of experience you'd have listened to a lot of things and part of why they are releasing a record with you is that they are hopefully trusting you and your opinion so yeah younger artists and more underdeveloped artists will be looking for more feedback I would say than someone that's already kind of developed their sound knows what they're doing knows what they want to achieve with a track so a recent example of giving feedback would be for the Phoenix EP that Mark East Hawks has just released on Aos. Um, Mark sent in an early demo. To me, there was almost more ideas in it than, than made sense for the track itself. There was so many strong ideas in it that I started to give feedback about maybe taking a few things out. And he experimented with doing that and then came back with something else. And then it became quite apparent that actually there was two full tracks in the initial idea that he'd sent. So we ended up then sort of separating it and it became parts one and part two. After a certain period of time, you don't really, can't really see the wood for the trees. You set, you make something and then you send it in and you're not really sure how you feel about it. So I think a good second set of ears should be able to go, there's so many strong things in here that it's almost not totally coherent. If you take some stuff away from it, it becomes better. 
but I think it takes time to build up a relationship with someone where they really value your, your, your feedback in terms of the example that I just gave with Marquis Hawks we've worked together very closely for, last, for the last few years so I think after a while they totally trust your opinion and I think when you've given them advice or feedback that has then helped in a direct way that they can go oh, okay he does actually know what he's talking about or um, oh yeah that, that did really make a difference then I think they, they look for it on everything that they do with you and that's that's where it becomes really enjoyable and you feel like you're actually sort of helping and you're involved in the process. A good example of feedback actually hopefully making a difference to someone was with Midland when he released his trace record and it's not that I really gave him any feedback on the track at all because I didn't it was just he was hesitant about whether he should release it at all he wasn't sure whether he, he liked it or whether it was very good and um, I thought it was brilliant so I didn't force him to put it out but I definitely said you really should release that because it's brilliant and he said okay fine I'll trust you and then it did really well it was definitely his sort of at the time it was a big record for him and it definitely gave him a stepping stone onto the next sort of stuff that he did so yeah it's lovely when you have that sort of relationship with them and they do actually trust you and you then in turn see it help so in terms of feedback here's batu the bristol-based dj and producer who runs the popular record label time dance responsible for excellent 12 inches by the likes of bruce ploy and lurker i get pretty specific about little things um because i feel like sometimes those smaller details are kind of what mold a track into being like a time dance track to me stuff like just taking out like a drum hit here or there i kind of tend to do it over email like i I'll write like a load of notes while listening to tracks right refining what i've put i can't always put my finger on what it's going to be and it's not like it's the same thing every time i think about the way it would fit into my dj sets i think about the kind of overall narrative the label is developing whether it's like the a side or the b side i think about all of this kind of stuff but it tends to be a pretty unconscious process just certain little things will stick out to me and annoy me a little bit those will be the things which i think maybe can be like revised basically talking about how you understand what the artist is trying to do is really important if you can both feel that you're hitting on the same thing and you're sharing the same vision for a track then you can like get kind of deeper into it and people are going to be more receptive I think. Balraj Samurai and Ruben Platt run Swingting, the Manchester label that's been putting out first-rate sound system music since 2014. I dialed them up via Skype. Samurai was on the move at the time, so it ended up as a three-way call. I asked them about when things go wrong during the label feedback process. There's been times where we've had to give up on a certain track and just say, I, I don't think this is going to end up with a compromise of like, both parties won. But I mean, that's only ever been on a track-by-track track basis. That's never been on a release basis or anything. I find one of the tougher things is convincing an artist that it's ready to go, though. Um, and, and like not saying like endless tweaks are needed. So sometimes that can be like sending something to somebody else who the artist trusts a lot to then feed that back to them. <laughs> um, so and that's happened a few times really where we've managed to kind of get something, kind of somebody excited about something through like a peer of theirs maybe. Do you think it's your own experience as producers that shape the way you give feedback? We've been like annoyed in the past with really vague general feedback 
maybe away multi-passers to do remixes and things like that. Some of the language you get, say, from sync companies or that kind of thing sometimes, it talks about like tempo and moody in a, in a strange way, in an abstract kind of way. I don't think it's necessarily that useful in a feedback way. It could be at a later point, you know, in a, in a description sense. They, they don't necessarily know how to articulate what they want. And it can yeah, just be a really yeah, yeah. frustrating process where you end up sending like multiple revisions of a track, kind of hoping it's like, oh, is this what we want now? Like, you know, is this what you want? And I think I think that's helped us be fairly specific. But yeah, I think there's a certain way that you want to avoid talking to people that we have experienced quite a few times in the past. I wanted to hear from some more label managers who also produce music themselves, so I spoke with Pearson Sound, co-founder of Hessel Audio, to discuss the role feedback has played in his own artistic development. I think it's only in the last few years, four or five years, that I've become a lot more open to sort of sharing music with people before it's finished and sitting in a room and playing your music to people. I think that was probably something that was quite scary, maybe starting out. But then now I totally can see the benefit for it and I guess why why wouldn't you want to have some extra ears on something before you share it with the world because invariably I'll play or send something to someone and within the first listen they'll spot something that's clearly not working and I think when you're working on your own in the studio it's very easy to miss things or you get very sidetracked on one particular element and then you send it to some someone with fresh ears and they're can immediately spot the problem you're having or you know why a tune is or isn't working so yeah it's something i've become a lot more open to and i think it's really helpful part of the process not comparing what we do to sort of pop or r&b hip-hop world but you see some of these great hit records that have a ton of different people working on and i think sometimes just having a ton of different ears on something can really help your music and at the end of the day you can always decide not to act on the feedback you're given but just to have sometimes few different opinions is really useful I think. Having done this quite a long time now between us, I think we feel we have something to offer by you know using our collective experience to give advice, you know using our experience in clubs and having that way of testing stuff out. It would be a shame not to use it in a way, be a shame not to sort of pass on that advice to people who may be just starting out. In our Berlin office, I sat down with the German DJ and producer Dana Ruth, who's been running the house and techno label Brucard Records since 2007, specialising in warm, functional club music. It's released music by plenty of newcomers, which has informed Ruth's hands-on approach to the feedback process. So you will take kind of tracks that aren't quite there yet and play them in the club and see how they sound on the big system? Yeah, I like to try it out also. For me also important is the arrangement, how it's arranged, uh, can I mix with it really good because I am looking for very mixable tracks and because this is the way how I'm mixing. I like long transitions, I really like to work with these tracks and uh, this is also my approach from when I'm signing tracks. Do you think it's um, your own experience as a producer that allows you, that gives you the confidence to give feedback? Absolutely, absolutely. Also. It's my experience as a producer because I, I, of course, I produce a lot of stuff, also a lot of shit stuff, I have to say, and uh, that was not perfect or I made mistakes. And I, if I see somebody or I hear somebody and I see um, a talent, I, of course, I want to develop this talent also and I want to take my experience to 
to give to them, to make them better. Because it's, it's nice again for my label if I have an artist that grows with the label. Do you think you've got better at giving feedback? Yes, absolutely. Time? Absolutely. I. The more I know with production, the more confident I am, the better I am with the feedback. The more I know what I would like to have for the label, absolutely, yeah. Um, and in terms of, as a producer yourself, how important has feedback been to shaping your own sound? Yeah, it is very important, but I'm a bit stupid <laughs> if it comes to this because I'm I'm sometimes too lazy to send things around. I, I do things and then they are on my computer. I forgot to give it to somebody. Right now I'm getting better and better and uh, feedback is always very important. And I'm very happy if I have feedback because I, also, I always can learn. It's, it's not, it not, does nothing to my ego. It's just, it makes me better, always. And when you were, you know, when you were learning, was feedback a part of the process or did you just Absolutely. kind of learn on your own? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it was very important. I produced also with some people together. I can, uh, and all the time I got the feedback. I, yeah, I was, I was just changing things to the better. That It's a very good thing to get feedback. And I don't really get the people that feel offended uh, if somebody gives the feedback or says, or oh, maybe you take this out or, ah, you should never be offended. Nobody wants to do something to you. Everybody just wants to make you better. No, nobody wants to do you bad or want to hurt you or whatever. Just you have to take this and make yourself better. How do you criticize someone's work or provide criticisms without offending them? Mm. First of all, it's always uh, always be positive because uh, also, I mean, music is an emotional thing and maybe this person had this idea and you cannot share this or you have other ideas for the piece being positive and just give ideas it's not that i say yeah but you should do this that just be positive and encourage them to try something new and lift them up it's good to say the positive things and then just be constructive like uh, yeah start with the positive things in general <laughs> Chris Farrell is best known as the man behind the Idle Hands label and record shop in Bristol. Though he studied music at school, he's not a producer, a detail that very much informs the way he runs his label. So what's Chris's approach to the feedback process? Mine's generally a, a bit hands-off, really. I think it comes from being not a producer myself. Like, although, you know, I have an understanding of music and I know it's put together, it's kind of less this that more I think it is just more thing I'm like that I don't really see it as my place you know um I kind of generally feel it's up to the artist to to make the kind of final decisions on things putting music out is definitely the least kind of financially rewarding part of the industry I just kind of want to make it as painless for them as possible and just facilitate you know it's the most important part for me because I run a record shop and the music is the most important thing for me but I just want to make sure I can like get the record out in decent quality decent little bit of attention from the press hopefully right shops and then I kind of think like my job's kind of done really I'd struggle to be that kind of executive producer type I, I think it's it's best to just have that kind of snapshot in time really artists who I, who I work with who are friends or whatever who aren't quite there yet you know I'd rather just keep on sending them away to make more tunes and then probably actually let's be honest probably frustrate them a little bit and then when they're really frustrated you know, that's when they, they do their best stuff. I mean, I know when, like, when Shani started making tunes, you know, it was a while before 
we're like, yeah, fuck it, that's the one. And probably that frustration of being like, oh, fuck, you know, when are they going to sign? <laughs> when is he going to sign? It was, you know, is a motivation to kind of carry on. But yeah, going, going in on mixed dance and all this, it's not necessarily my role, I don't think. Here's Shanti Celeste, who used to work alongside Farrell Idle Hands and at Bristol, the label with no vowels that they set up together in 2011. Last year, she started her own label, Peach Discs, which she manages herself in addition to touring and making music. I would never want to compromise somebody's artistic integrity, and I don't want someone to feel like they're having to change loads about a track just for me. It's their track. However, it does need to also work for me because it's my label and I have a view for it. So the way that I approach it so that everybody's happy and from the point of view of somebody who makes music herself and have also had to deal with this on the other side is that I just say, look, usually most of the feedback is feedback which will enhance everything that's already in the track. It's never like, oh, I think you need to completely just read, like just redo the whole thing. Like I, I would never do that. So it's always like, I always try and give feedback which it works with all of the elements that are already there and perhaps enhances the vibe of the track that is already there, if you know what I mean. When I do it, I always say, if you feel really strongly about this certain part and you're like, you know, oh, I don't want to change it, then that's totally fine and don't do it and then just send it to somebody else, you know what I mean? Because it's because it's always just like, at the end of the day, it's up to them. I've done it with a few people and most of the time, I've never really had a bad response. Like I've done it with everybody that I've released and it's always just, it's always gone down really well. And I'm currently doing it with a couple of more artists who are going to release on the label and we've kind of been doing some back and forth. And yeah, it kind of works quite well as long as you don't, as long as you're not basically trying to take over the tracks and make them your own, do you know what I mean? Which I don't know whether anybody does that, but I do think it's really useful to give people feedback because when I, when I was doing stuff, and people would just refuse me straight away or just be like, no, I don't want this track for whatever reason. I would always be like, God, what if the reason they don't want it is because of a really minor detail? Do you know what I mean? So it's, it, I always felt like it would be really good to know why it is that they didn't like it. Do you know what I mean? So maybe I could change it or... But I, I appreciate that that's not... That not everybody has time to do that. And even I sometimes don't feel like I have time to do that with every single person that sends me music. In fact, I don't. Do you think you feel comfortable giving feedback because you're a producer yourself? Yeah, I feel comfortable to give feedback because I wish I had some feedback sometimes. And the, the best experiences I've had with labels have been when they've given me feedback. The reason I used to I used to show more is because I needed I needed I need I did need feedback and I needed help where I was like for me now, I feel like this pressure of just like, well, I'm doing really well now. I should know how to make music on my own without people helping me. Do you know what I mean? Because in my mind, people giving me feedback is essentially people helping me. But and I've I've always just been very like, I don't need help. I'm, do you know what I mean? I'm very independent in that way. I'm just like, I don't need anyone. <laughs> but that's not a good attitude to have. I think when you get feedback, even if you don't follow it, it just gives you more ideas, which is fucking great. As you've heard, feedback, in whatever form it takes, is a crucial cog in the long chain of events that leads to a record being released. The right advice delivered in the right way can have dramatic effects not only on a single track or an EP, but on a producer's confidence and ability in the long term. The important thing then is to make the process as positive and constructive as possible. The better the relationship between the artist and label manager, the better the music at the end of it.
As a label, Night Slugs has spent the past 10 years releasing music with its sights firmly set on the future. During this time, the label run by Botbok and Elvis 1990 seemed to influence an entire generation of producers while laying some of the groundwork for the experimental club scene that's thriving today. We wanted to take stock of some of the incredible music that's come out on Night Slugs. So we asked Botbok and Elvis to stop by our London studio to play a six of the label's most vital tracks. You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. Hey, this is Botbok and this is Elvis1990 from Night Slugs. All right, so our first pick from the catalogue is I Roll by Girl Unit, our third ever release. Yeah, I remember that one when you uh, dropped it in the East Village rave the first time and i was like what the hell who the hell is this and what like, the hell is it yeah yeah it's like and he's like yeah it's phil yeah. it's a crazy track it kind of uh it kind of put together everything that we were really interested in at the time i think one of the biggest influences on this was that we booked genius um really early on yeah and them guys were all playing rat alert by um by Yan Driver. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I think that that pitch bend thing just really caught on with us. Yeah, we, were, from we there. were all on that, that neon pitch bend kind of vibe. <laughs> that that is like the first era of Night Slugs, you know. Night Slugs Wave One, and yeah, yeah Big Up Girl Unit. It's still, I still play it all the time. Still like a sick track from the yeah. genre. I think it's like dropped a in Berghain as well at the weekend. That's right. We have What Again by Girl Unit because he really dominated 2010 for us. But um, yeah, What, that was a huge track. Oh my God, that that one then dropped in the rave. Uh, where was that? The, um, down Crucifix Lane. Crucifix Lane, yeah. RIP. It got like four rewinds or something, you know. Definitely. That was, that was one track. to rewind at the time. Um, definitely kind of showed, um, I suppose, our hip hop influence a bit. Because um, I think to that point, maybe people weren't so familiar with that side of slugs. but. Yeah, that one, I think it's like Proto Trap or something. Definitely heard a lot of producers from that world credit it as oh being God, the, a big influence for them. So, again, big up, girl, you know.
right, next up, Silo Pass. Huge track, huge track. One of my ones. Yeah, it was nice for me to go back to an era where Dump Valve style grime was my biggest influence. Always enjoy playing that one. I stopped playing it myself. <laughs> <laughs> but there are millions of remixes that I can draw for, so it's always um, there's always a, a, a version of Silo somewhere kicking about. Definitely made it in the old Nice Lugs headquarters in South London where we all used to kind of live together. And that is a very nostalgic feel, thinking about that now. And yeah, I think it was really made out of all the original kind of classic kits that everyone was using at the time, 2003, 2004 times. Um, and I kind of did a bit of research into how to um, into how to make those sounds and stuff. So I spent quite a bit of time on that sort of archaeology, um, which is why it sounds the way it does. track i remember making this so vividly uh i was trying to like recreate i was so actually i was so obsessed with um kenny larkin's pump the move remix at that time so i was trying to recreate that in some way you can hear it in the intro and then somehow i stumbled across this crazy patch or made this patch on the dx7 which created that bass sound and i could going back i could never actually recreate that sound it was just one insane. of those studio magic moments yeah right? yeah it's, it's gone it was a moment of like genius given from the gods and uh it's gone forever now <laughs> <laughs> it's hard enough to save patches on dx7 so oh, I don't play yeah me. that's the problem yeah, yeah um but this one to me is just pure sublo love love it it's like it's like black ops or something but uh, also the prototype for this sort of deconstructed club thing that people are a little bit <laughs> a little bit <laughs> yeah, after that picture Next up we got 
How We Relate to the Body by Jam City off of his um, seminal album Classical Curves. This was so great at the time because it was just this stripped down club movement with funk all over it as well with this like with this funk synth and um, I have a feeling I think that I think this I think this track was influenced by Arthur Russell's yeah um, it's got very Arthur Russell Arthur Russell's uh, Let's Go Swimming Let's Go Swimming the dub the uh, Walter Gibbons the Walter Gibbons dub yeah um, but taken into the world of, of kind of uh, what was it 2012 Night Slugs really influenced by Jersey Club and those kind of really big kick patterns really hollow super minimal, minimal but like maximal at the same time definitely and um I still I haven't played this one in a while, but I think it's when it's when drawn for the, for at the right moment, it can definitely do things to the to the rave that are quite special. Definitely. Stop is Helix debut on Night Slugs drum track. Um, I think this like really set the bar for for drum tracks around the world. Basically, there's still like if you listen to everyone's music today, you can hear influence from this track. It's just a total cold banger. Definitely would agree with that. Um, sort of tribal house is grime. It was obviously vocaled by Flirted D at one point. Um, and uh, like also hit on like a like funky at the time as well. Funky, the same same kind of patterns that were yeah. you know, dropped on the harder harder tracks back then. Certainly an archetype and remains an archetype for the kind of music I want to play in the club. Definitely a lot has changed for us and um, 
probably a lot of our focuses have changed quite a lot I think at this point um, quite a few of us are involved in um, production work working with artists just in the studio every day making beats I'm doing quite a lot more work in sound design and kind of work for um, like commercial brands like creating some like using what I've learned from night slugs and like my sound design through club tracks I can apply that to like different films and uh, various other bits yeah I mean I would say that people have definitely run away with um, with it and the underground club movement is, is strong but I just feel like I'm I don't know I think personally I'm, I'm moving in a direction where I'm just making a lot of hip-hop beats at the moment working with a lot of artists so maybe feeling a little bit less involved I suppose but it's because it's it needs to it needs young energy and that's it you know it, we've been around the block for a minute so it's time to um, apply what we've learned to other things nightlife, Amsterdam is often held up as a best-in-class example of how to sustain a thriving scene. In 2012, the city appointed Murik Milan as its first nightmare, a position that was created to represent the interests of the city's nightlife industry, while acting as a bridge between that industry and the local government. After serving two terms, Milan was recently replaced by Shimiro van der Held, who made it his goal to make Amsterdam's nightlife more diverse and more welcoming to people from different backgrounds. Our ace Frederik van Veening met up with him last week to get his views on where Amsterdam nightlife is at and where he'd like to see it headed. We're welcoming Amsterdam's new nightmare, Shamiro van der Geld. Welcome. Thank you, Frederik. Uh, we're chatting here at the top floor of the Adam Tower with a panoramic view over the entire city, which is pretty cool. You will follow up Mirik Milan as the main liaison between local politics and Amsterdam nightlife. Definitely. For a term of three years. And you will also be the chairman of the Amsterdam Nightmare Foundation. So just to give a little bit of background on, for those who are not familiar with the concept, the Nightmare of Amsterdam is a mediator and liaison between all participants of Amsterdam nightlife. A rebel in a suit, as we often call it, because you can be a pain in the ass for uh, the local regulator sometimes. You also have to speak the same language to achieve goals and by having a dialogue to change the rules. So after two terms, Mirik Milan is passing the torch to you, Shamiro. Yes. You've been a fixture in Amsterdam's culture scene for over five years, I think. Yes, definitely. Hosting, At least five years. Yeah. Hosting radio shows, TV shows, acting, emceeing, organizing events, uh, writing, dancing, you name it. The whole creative shebang, yeah. I, I shall say, yeah. 
Um, so you are born and raised Amsterdammer, isn't it? Yes, I am. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, like, unfortunately it's only listening, otherwise, as you said, on this panoramic view, I could actually point it out to you, but I was born in, I was born in the north of Amsterdam, and I was raised in the center um, by my two parents, my lovely parents. Um, and my parents are from Suriname, which is an um, uh, ex-colony and slave country of the Netherlands. And they came to Holland in their mid-twenties and got me and my sister in the early thirties. So what's your personal connection to Amsterdam and the night? Well, my personal connection to Amsterdam and the night is, um, I think it's, it's very familiar to, to many that when you are on a certain age, um, let's say 17, 18, maybe 16, uh, you find it difficult to communicate on several topics with your parents and you feel the need to go out to meet others. Myself, I used to skateboard a lot, so I was I was outside quite so many times, and yeah, the older you get, the longer the, the later you have to be home. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, I made a lot of friends outside. I used to dance and do break dance, and I was interested in actually the all elements of hip hop, and but also theater, and I was finding quite so many difficulties, like with my with my parents, the rules and 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 lines, etc. They they put me in, and yeah, the night was actually the place where I could set myself free from from their ideas or, or wishes. My parents were pretty strict, and like I could leave the house, yes, but then I had to be home at a certain time, and then I found it really hard to be home at that time. It would be quite often that the key was in the lock so it would be impossible for me to go inside just locked out yeah locked out and sometimes i would tell my friends i would ask my friends if i could sleep with them uh, but also a lot of times i didn't really dare to tell them my my truth or the way things were uh, laid out for me and then i would just go to my neighborhood and just walk around like five six seven in the morning yeah, nightlife really was a way out for me. I said, I believe it is for a lot of people. You know, when you're in a certain age, you just want to find your own beliefs and it's really hard to, to deal with the things your parents maybe want for you. And it's a time where you have to find out yourself. Yeah. And this was, this was my time, yeah. yeah. Um, so why do you think nightlife is so important and powerful for our city and our, our Amsterdamers? And why do you think we should treat it with with big care. It's a privilege. Let's start with that. It's a very, it's a privilege to be able to have a, something as a nightlife because nightlife for me stands, uh, in many ways, it stands for freedom. The night time is actually the only time where you have this freedom, where you can actually explore yourself and others. So just looking back on the accomplishments we've made with um, with the nightmare and the foundation. Mm -hmm. So I guess Mirik's uh, biggest accomplishment is organizing several international summits on nightlife and night culture. Yes, definitely. But, uh, but moreover, introducing the first 24 hours licenses here for uh, a bunch of clubs back in 2013. So I think you can state that our nightlife has changed drastically over the past years. And uh, for the first time, a good selection of clubs can, can stay open until whenever they want. Yeah. 
And in return, uh, they need to commit to offering a more diverse cultural um, creative content for their clubs and become more yeah, multidisciplinary, I would say, mm -hmm. with a strong community, community function, such as the school, for example. It's not only a club, it's also a restaurant, a bar, a, uh, gym. a gym, yeah, a co-working space, which is really incredible. And uh, it wasn't like that before. You can practically hang out there for 24 hours and it's not only about drinking a lot and dancing a lot, but it has much more value, I would, I would say. So obviously Mirik and his partner Ella Overkleeft uh, made big steps to professionalize the position. Uh, back in 2002, um, when the first Nightmare was installed, it was more of a gimmick, wasn't it? It was more of this, a figure that came from the night, but it wasn't a really serious job. It wasn't, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was, a, it was a gimmick, but it was an idea. Mm -hmm. And um, also when you talk about the 24-hour permit, uh, obviously it's something uh, Mirik introduced also with Isis, his nightmare before Mirik. But it's, it, the nightmare was an idea, and the idea was um, professionalized by Mirik, and also he he got uh, between the city council and the mayors, and he made the he made the nightmare an important. He, he he could he was able to tell people how important it would be to have somebody um, protecting um, and thinking about how our nightlife is and should be and can be, um, especially at Forest Cities Amsterdam, where there are so many tourists, also so many people who come from abroad to live here. Yeah. It's very important to keep your certain beliefs that maybe have to do with the fundamentals of Amsterdam. Yeah. And um, our last night mayor, who unfortunately passed away, Eberhard van der Laan, also, also saw, or mayor, yes, yeah, yeah. sorry, also, also saw this, um, also had this vision of creating um, a position for somebody who could um, speak up for the night and yeah. really be representative. Yeah. So when uh, Mirik started his role, he was pretty much left with a with a little paper, an A4, with uh, some contacts and some scribbles mm -hmm. uh, as a handover. Um, so good luck with that. <laughs> so I have I have much more now, yeah. <laughs> definitely. How are you being prepared for this role? Um, how am I being prepared? Well. Uh, luckily, I have Ella and Mirik who are supporting me 100%. Uh, there are a lot of documents I have to look into, uh, stuff that they, that's already been done, but also a lot of connections uh, that have been made in, in, in the last years. Um, there is this club committee, which is the Club van 100, the Club of 100. Mm -hmm. These are 65 clubs who are sponsors from, the, from our foundation. and. I have to meet all these people, I have to talk to all these people, um, hear about them, their ideas, also gain their confidence uh, to actually really do something for the city and uh, yeah, also bring a lot of people and new people together. Yeah, and so yeah, you work on a regular basis with the, with the mayor and, and his council, how does that, how does that work? Um, how, how often do you meet? Well. We just had our um, uh, city council uh, elections yesterday, so I didn't really have the chance to meet. Well, I've met our last our, our, our mayor now, but 
we will have a new mayor pretty soon, and I think we have a, I have a meeting with him uh, next week, and then a new mayor will be installed, and then I'll have another meeting. But yes, for these meetings, we even have pre-meetings to yeah. exact, exactly have on paper what we want to discuss, and also try to get a fund for our foundation and, and the things we do. And this is actually pretty new for me, but very, very exciting just to have the chance to, like everybody has these conversations in clubs or at bars where you talk about the things you find interesting or important. And now I have the chance to talk to the decision makers and yeah. um, show them my passion, my love and my dedication for our nightlife. Yeah, yeah you have such a powerful role and I think that's, it's amazing that here in Amsterdam we try to bridge the gap between the nightlife and, and local politics. And um, Amsterdam, we have it's, our city has one of the biggest electronic music offer. I would I would say, and sometimes you often see when things go wrong in the night, when there's violence or rules that are not uh, followed. Uh, local politics can easily react by killing or, or locking up the industry. Just like parents would, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, we've seen it in, in Sydney where they uh, uh, where they created lockout laws and um, just locking up the, the whole industry. And mm -hmm. I think this, the nightmare is important to avoid reactions like this. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, what effects do you see on having these 24 hours licenses? A huge effect, uh, as, you was, as you mentioned as well, like these places offer so much more than just a drink, <laughs> a dark space with yeah. loud music. And um, also for a city like Amsterdam, with less than a million inhabitants, it's really um, it's really important and nice that we have are able to go out, but not just go out at night to dance, but also to watch a film or be inspired by art or uh, meet each other. And I was, as I mentioned before. In our daytime, we have to work, we, we have certain things we have to do. And with this 24-hour permit, um, it actually gives us more time to get to know each other or like build connections. Yeah. When it's just going to a club and dancing loud music and the only place you can actually talk is maybe the smoking area or, or, the, or the hallway, yeah. um, a 24-hour permit uh, offers so much more. It also offers people to go have go to an event during daytime. Mm -hmm. um, how nice is it when you are able to have a super nice lunch with friends, maybe at your place or at my place, and then at three or four o'clock we go to the club and yeah. we do we have some dancing, we have some talks, we meet up with more people, and whenever you feel like it could be eight at night, ten at night, or ten in the morning, yeah. you leave and you go home and you go back to you go to your work, and it also gives so much more. Um, give so much more feeling to the daily life you live. Mm -hmm. uh, people really change um, to what they experience by night and this they can obviously bring in their daily life. Yeah, I think it's also a great tool to expand the city. I think the first pilot with the 24 hours license, the, the licenses were granted to the clubs that were a little bit more out of, out of the city, outside of the city, which gives a bit of more spread of people like expanding their view and going to yes, these places. Definitely. And also. these places also become very um, 
um, influence places to build for new buildings, for new ideas. Yeah. Uh, the nightlife really creates the possibility for new for new places to be found and for investors eventually yeah. also to invest. And that's how we are the creators of the city. We, we create the next new hotspot. And this is, this is a beautiful thing that, as I said, our last mayor also saw and understood that these people need to be heard. These people need to have a place to create the future. Of the yeah, city. and develop your talents as well. Yes, right? that's definitely. super important. So, what do you think are the most important challenges Amsterdam is facing? Um, several. Uh, Amsterdam is a very diverse city, one of the most diverse city in the world. I think we're in top three. But hey, who cares about numbers? <laughs> yeah, we have talking about numbers. 180 different nationalities living here. Yes. Quite impressive. It's super impressive. And I'm and I'm one of them. And my friends also are from all places. So it's super important that we are able to stick together, even though the media can portray different things. It's very important that we are able to connect and find each other. It's also very important that we are we feel the need to speak each other's language. It would be nice if I could say two sentences or one word or just say hello or goodbye. Mm-hmm. I would have a connection with this person instead of only wanting people to speak my language and not, not just talking my language as in Dutch or English, but talking my language yeah. as in my personal. It's very important that people uh, understand each other, understand each yeah. other and, have, and on, yeah, on, by understanding each other, people also have respect for each other. Sure. When people talk about certain minorities, it cannot just be negative thing. When somebody talks about a minority, I think, hey, my baker also is from this nationality. I have super good connection with him. He's a super nice guy. We only talk two or three words with each other, but it's always love. And mm-hmm. that and that's an important thing that has to stay and has to move through the city and uh, also through nightlife. Yeah, I do feel, to be honest, that our diversity in, in the city doesn't really reflect well enough in nightlife. I still see that our dance floors are predominantly white. Yes, and I would say yes and no. When we talk about electronic music, yes. When we talk about Afro, uh, hip hop, different types of urban genres, I would definitely say yes. And these two worlds can definitely also learn something from each other. Are they mixed already or are they living separate? Well, they're pretty much living separate. Um, I, myself, was, I grew up with a lot of hip hop and I think when I was 22, 20, yeah, between 20 and 22, 23, I got more and more into electronic music, first starting as a MC vocalist. Um, but I also found that industry very white. I almost found I almost found that I had to have a reason to be there mm-hmm. if I was not white. And yeah, this kind of struck me. So do you feel there's a, a role for clubs as well to make the venues in the clubs more inclusive? Is it, for example, the door policy that's falling behind? I think there's several things. Um, I think door policy is very important, but also obviously the people you have working in your club um, and not just people you have working in your club, also people you have playing. I often say that uh, diversity is a new form of quality because um, if it's just electronic music played by um, one type of people, one sort of people, you automatically will reach a ceiling. 
And I believe personally that by putting several people in places, several cultures, several types of IDs into into one place, you you'll find the best ID. You you add something from every culture yeah. or from every type of person, and then also these persons will find something there. Because I remember when I was coming to a lot of clubs, I found myself as the only person of, of color. I automatically didn't feel at home that much, and it that's the thing what a club has to be. It has to you have to feel free, you have to feel safe, yeah. you have to feel comfortable. That's one of the most important things. Yeah. And I hope we, obviously we're still going to talk about safety because that's also a very a big issue. But you have to feel at home, and when I'm there, and I'm the only person of color. Mm. I don't feel on on ease. Yeah. And this is really. Important. Great uh, quote. Uh, it was mentioned before, I think, uh, Verna Myers, who uh, who said, "Diversity is being invited to the party, and inclusion is being asked to dance." Yes. Which I yes. uh, find really, really cool. And that's pretty much the thing we need to accomplish now. I think definitely, and it will be di- it will be difficult um, because changing something from start like when you start a club and and you start saying okay like we want to have this and that and this in yes you have you start with that and people already understand but when the club is already there when the structure is already standing it's really difficult to take parts out and put other parts in Mm -hmm. Uh, automatically you will have to disappoint people and you have to tell people for some reason you are choosing him over her or her over him and it's not just skin color or ethnicity it's also male female uh, queer lgbt it's it's Mm -hmm. it's it's everything so can you tell us a little bit about um safety and and, uh, your campaign or your plans to create a safer nightlife yes definitely i think it's very important for people to feel safe um in their surroundings because if if they feel safe, they also feel uh, they also more will they will also be more able to talk to others, but also be more able to express themselves. And when people express themselves, they learn from each other. If they don't express themselves, they um, keep that within them, or they won't be able to develop, uh, which can also end up in um, aggressive uh, behavior, even. Um, I think it's very important that people are feeling free. Uh, also, females on the dance floor. Um, I listen to a lot of podcasts where people talk about. Um, there's a Dutch saying: "Meisjes plagen, kusjes vragen." <laughs> to bully is to ask a kiss, yeah. or, or to like to playfully ask a kiss from a girl. And there are so many structures that are built in our society where we really have to think again if that is how we want. To live is, is this how we want to raise our children? Is this how we think uh, we are? Um, is this is this how we think we are equal, equally uh, having the same um, um, opportunities? Mm-hmm. Um, I often heard that females leave a party not because they're tired, but just because they're tired of the harassment. They're tired of being touched, being asked, being uh, looked at, or being whistled at in a certain way and this is not this is not what I think our future should be I think this is something we really need to address and this is also something I talk uh, with the club owners with Uh, how can we make a more safe space 
uh, inside the club and then again also how can we make more space outside of the club mm -hmm. um, there, there are like safety people who work at the club the security also has, has to be trained the bar staff has to be trained people have to know that they have to keep their eye out for things like this yeah i think there's also should be facilities and i, I know that you thought about that as well just also, if you think about safety in listening to music or safety in, in taking drugs, we need to have, you know, uh, earplugs available mm -hmm. at clubs or we need to educate people if they want to take drugs, how to do it and how not to do it. Yes, definitely. That's also safety, isn't it? Definitely. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a very wide skill and um, it's, it's, it's a big topic. Uh, Safety has also to do, has also to do with a certain education and a, and a certain um, adultish way of enjoying nightlife. Mm -hmm. I want to go out. I want to be able to go out on a Sunday and to work on the month on the next day after, um, just because I really benefit from going out. It, it really helps me, just like how people benefit from going to the gym. Um, and to have a safe space is, is, as I said, is super important. Yeah, exercise for the mind and the soul, huh? Definitely, and the, and the body, and the body. And the body well. yeah. I rave, I rave, <laughs> yeah. I sweat. <laughs> One, yeah, a learning maybe you can, you can give other cities or some considerations. What, what does it take in order to be successful as a nightmare and a, a foundation? I think, especially. But like you said, to be a foundation and to be independent is one of the most important things. As we said, Mirik Milan brought the Nightmare to a wider audience and it's being internationally, it's becoming a thing, so mm -hmm. to say. I think New York also has a new Nightmare now. London has been having a Nightmare for a little while also. And this idea is being brought to more cities and countries. But as I said, I think it's really important to be independent because only in that way you'll be able to um, talk to every party and be taken serious by every party as well. Yeah. And also you're able to still keep your own IDs and your own red line through the massive industry because there are so many things going on. Um, there are so many different, like males, females, um, there's money, there is drugs, there's so many people who, who want to have their say or already have their say in the night and it's very important as a nightmare and a foundation to be able to touch all of them but not be connected in a way that anybody um, is waiting for you to help them in a way that you are helping them to earn more money or yeah. to make them a better club whatsoever. Yeah. Me personally, I've uh, I've been wondering about your music taste and mm. if there is uh, a track in your night life or night career that really made a mark. Mm. Yes, I do. I do have one. Can you tell us about the the moment? Yes, I, maybe you can hear from my voice. I kind of feel <laughs> in love now because just thinking of this of this track and this moment. It was during a Lowlands Festival. It's not the biggest festival we have in Holland, but it's the most prestigious festival, I might say. There are a lot of international acts, but also a lot of uh, Dutch DJs um, who are on the top of the industry that are able to play there. One of my best friends, Elias Mazian, 
played during that uh, festival and he was playing in the um, the, um, the 24 hour tent yeah. so the tent that doesn't end you know I've been there yeah and um, it's a three-day festival we were there we were camping we're having fun with a lot of friends and he already asked me like hey Sunday I have to do the closing are you down to host or MC with me and he, I think he asked this me I asked this on a Friday and I said yeah definitely man we're gonna do this but of course on Sunday we were like completely smashed and tired and hadn't showered for I don't know how long and he then he asked me hey Shmiro are you still down to do this with me I looked at him and I said okay let's go let's do this so he was already playing and I think the the, the tent was half full he was not really feeling it because the, the DB meter was too high and then my friend took it out and another friend lifted me up and I sat on the speakers and I was able to like host for such a huge crowd and more and more people came in. And then he played a tune, Cookie Dust from Roman Flugel, which is one of my favorite artists. And I still, like, I think it's four years ago, but I still have people come up to me in the streets or during events and say, I'm like, hey man, that set that day, the wow. best moment in club history. Wow, amazing story. Well, let's, uh, let's have a listen then. Thank you to everyone who contributed to this month's edition of The Hour and thank you very much for listening. We'll be back at the end of April with another blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. 